the uh, second chapter of the book of Revelation. I'll be reading the entire chapter, and today we're going to be focusing on the church at Pergamos. Chapter 2 begins, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou cannot bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art, fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. And that's as far as we'll be going in that chapter today. Now our Lord is delivering a message to the church of Pergamos, and I'm going to deliver something to you. My tight bar here, tight tack. I, my printer stopped printing pictures. Otherwise, I'd, I'd have a. I, I do have a handout that I printed uh, um, some time ago for this. But uh, um, my printer stopped printing pictures, and I wanted to show you what I'm going to be talking about in the sermon. Uh, you've you've seen it, uh, I'm sure, in your doctor's office called a caduceus. But this is my tie tie bar from my father. Actually, who was a doctor. And, uh, but I'll pass it around. I want you to take a look and remind yourself of what the caduceus looks like because uh, if you just pass it around, that's one of the things we talked about in the sermon today. I'm sure you all know, will recognize that. And what you may not know is the background of that. 
So our Lord is delivering a message to the church at Pergamos, which uh, Pergamos, um, again, is in... uh, In fact, I've got the sermon notes here. It does have the map of Asia Minor. Turkey today, and uh, those that map shows the seven churches, and, and you'll see where Pergamos is. Uh, Pergamos was the capital of Asia Minor. Now, when we think of Asia, we think of China and, and Japan and things, but that's not what we're talking about. This is a, uh, this is Asia Minor, which is again uh, uh, Turkey and points uh, east of that. Uh, and that's where all the seven churches of the book of Revelation were located. And they were actually, uh, which we learned on our trip, they were in kind of an oval shape, and they're not very, they're not very far apart. Uh, and uh, it is thought, well, uh, Sir William Ramsey, who wrote a book in uh, the 1800s, late 1800s, uh, was an archaeologist, but he was also a, a devout believer, and uh, it was his opinion that the... Uh, Circuit there, the, ch- the churches in this in this uh, area, the seven churches, were on a, a Roman postal route, and that would kind of fits in because these are letters to the church, uh, and uh, so it's fascinating to see how you look at the map, and yes, they could very well be in a, a Roman postal route. Uh, the Roman Empire did have a, a postal system. Uh, our Lord is delivering a message to the church at Pergamos again, which was the capital of Asia Minor, the Roman province, and it was the capital of, of Asia Minor. Uh, Pergamos was also another kind of a capital. It was a capital of incredible evil. Uh, one ancient author says Pergamos was the most idolatrous city in Asia Minor and the one that most persecuted the Christians. Uh, Pergamos uh, was a city-state. It was a Greek city-state. In other words, uh, the city was the state. There was no uh, larger authority. Uh, the city ruled itself, and uh, but it was Greek, and then it became part of the Roman Empire in 133 B.C. Uh, 16 miles inland from the Aegean Sea, as you can see on your map. Uh, it's on a mountain, and it can be seen for miles. When we were coming up in the bus, we could see where it was for several miles out. Uh, in fact, they built a uh, cable car to get up there now. Um, so it's quite, quite up on the top of, the, of a, uh, oh, I don't know how tall the mountain is. As I, I recall 2,000 feet, 3,000. It's not like you know tens of thousands or anything like that, but it's, it's way up there. Uh, Pergamos couldn't rival Ephesus or Smyrna in its volume of trade, but it did have other, as we talked about Ephesus and Smyrna in the last few weeks, but it had other distinctions. It was where the heathen emperors had their seat of power. Uh, The Roman historian Pliny called it the most renowned city of Asia. Asia Minor was a very, uh, 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 of, of Asia Minor, the most renowned city of Asia Minor. It was a highly literate city. It was a cultured city. Uh, in some ways, it was the Athens of Asia Minor. 
Uh, Pergamos had the second best library in the ancient Greek civilization before it was Roman, uh, after the one at Alexandria. Uh, they say that there were 200,000 volumes, there were scrolls, 200,000 books essentially in, in the library. Um, uh, Pergaminus is a uh, comes from Pergam, the word Pergamum. Pergaminus is a material that revolutionized the writing of books and it was invented in Pergamum. Uh, it's a parchment made of fine calfskin, and it was a great improvement. Before that, they used Egyptian papyrus uh, made from the, the reeds, and they would fell apart, but the calfskin parchment preserved what was written on it centuries longer than papyrus. So it was a great advance. Pergamus was also the ancient world's center of medicine, and that's why I passed this around. Uh, if you, you know, ancient medicine, uh, if you want to call it medicine, uh, not far from the city, we saw it. Uh, it's probably it's actually from the mountain. You look down, and it's it's down in the valley, so it's a couple, probably three four miles away. Uh, was a sanctuary, a temple, if you will, of Aesculapius. Aesculapius. Aesculapius was the god of medicine and healing. Uh, ancient Aesculapian temples are the forerunners of hospitals, in fact. Uh, people with health problems came from all over um, to bathe in the water of the sacred spring, and then they went to an adjoining building where they slept, uh, and uh, they hoped to have dreams where the god Aesculapius would tell them how to cure their illness. The priests also would do the same. They would hope to have dreams where Aesculapius would come and tell them how to cure their patients. Uh, if you know anything about Edgar Casey, you know people know about Edgar Casey and his followers. Okay, Edgar Casey was the uh, uh, they called him the sleeping prophet back in the 1930s and 40s, 20s maybe, uh, who would. Uh, uh, in Virginia Beach, Virginia, uh, would go into a trance or some kind of sleep thing, uh, and people would write him from all over the world and say, you know, I have this health problem, and he would uh, go into this trance and come out of it and diagnose their problem and prescribe what they should, some herbal thing they should take for it. Uh, actually, it's quite demonic. He apparently, uh, uh, it was a, a, a real creepy thing. But uh, okay, so that's kind of what they were doing there. Uh, Ecclesiastes one nine. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Uh, Escalapius was represented as a serpent. He was also called the savior. Uh, that was horrifying to the Christians in Pergamos to call a serpent god the savior. I mean, how much more demonic can you get? Uh, call the serpent from the Garden of Eden the savior. That's, you know, you're on the wrong side of the, of the fence there. Um, his staff, you know, a rod or a staff is a symbol of authority. The shepherd has the rod. He has, he has the authority over the sheep. Uh, the uh, uh, king has the scepter. Uh, uh, the, the Pope has his scepter. You know, it's a symbol of authority. Okay, so it, Aesculapius's, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, staff or rod um, with the snake around it is called the caduceus. And that's what I passed out. The caduceus, which you may have seen in your doctor's office. Uh, it's still today the symbol of medicine, the snake twined around a rod. Sometimes, as, as I passed out, two snakes 
twined around a rod. And now, actually, that with the with the wings is the most common caduceus, uh, symbol of uh, the medical department in the United States Army, among other nations. Uh, that's actually the uh, Hermes or Mercury uh, symbol, uh, uh, but uh, they they've adopted that, uh, and it's it's very much related to this. Um, it's also an occult symbol. Uh, something called the Caduceus Power Wand is sold at New Age and witchcraft stores uh, with the claim that it gives the owner demonic powers. Uh, by the way, Caduceus is the Greek word, uh, a Greek root rather, of the English word cadaver, the dead body. <coughs> Caduceus is the Greek root, the Greek root of the English word cadaver. So this is, we're dealing with dead and demons and things like that. Um, interestingly enough, in doing some research on this subject and writing the sermon, I found at a website called MasonicDictionary.com that the Masons use the rod, the Caduceus rod, or the Escalapius rod, uh, the senior deacon or master of ceremonies in the third degree uh, ceremony of, of, of Masons, and I will quote to you from the from Mackey's Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, which is cited on that website. Quote: The master of ceremonies or senior deacon leads the aspirant. That would be the person getting the third degree of, of Masonry. Quote: Through the forms of initiation into his new birth or Masonic regeneration, exact quote here, and teaching him in the solemn ceremonies of the third degree the lessons of eternal life may well use, we're talking about the senior deacon, may well use the magic wand as a representation of it, eternal life, of, of, of it, Escapolis, uh, uh, who was the attribute of that ancient deity who brought the dead to life. Okay, if you're following that, Scepolis brought the dead to life. He's the savior uh, represented by the wand, and the Masons use that uh, in the, uh, may use that in the uh, third degree, uh, um, going up to the third degree ceremonies. Uh, I can talk a lot about Masons. We're not here to talk about Masons today, but I thought that was very interesting, uh, especially when they talk about um, the new birth, or also known as Masonic regeneration. Pergamos became the capital of the East for the imperial cult. I'm going a little more historic uh, background for you on Pergamos before we get into, uh, specifically into the scripture on it. Uh, the imperial cult was the worship of the emperor as a god. Uh, so we had Zeus worshipped, Escalapius worship. And in 29 B.C., Caesar Augustus allowed the uh, Pergamites to build a temple in his honor, which became the center for Caesar worship in Asia Minor. And we saw the ruins of this, in fact, when we were there last month. Uh, so the Roman emperor had to com compete with Zeus. Um, Zeus's center of worship was his altar, which stood on a hill uh, as an outcropping on the, of the mountain below the city of Pergamos just below, not too far. Uh, and you can see it from the city. You're standing in the city, and you look over here, and here's this gigantic, I mean, it, it was gigantic, uh, altar of Zeus. Um, 
800 feet up a ledge, this ledge jutted out from the mountain and on it stood the altar of Zeus. It was 90 feet square, 20 feet high. Uh, All day and all night, the altar shot forth the smoke and fire of endless animal and human sacrifices. During the day, it looked like a pillar of cloud and uh, at night like a column of fire mimicking the Lord in, uh, in the wilderness. It dominated the city day and night. This gigantic altar looking like a great seat towering uh, by, the th- by the town. So, remember Lord saying, Pergamos had Satan's throne? Uh, that's, not a, uh, that's not a mystery. The altar exists today, by the way. The uh, 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 German archaeologist that discovered it and excavated Pergamos uh, dismantled the altar and had it shipped to Germany where it was reassembled and restored and is now in the Berlin Museum of Pergamos. So you can, uh, you can go visit it there. Today the site of the altar is just an empty spot with some, some columns and things like that. And when we were there, we asked our guide about that and he said, yeah, he, t- he told us about that and he said the, uh, the German archaeologist actually, uh, his grave is, is, he wanted to be buried at Pergamos. He's, he's buried there. And I, I said, well, did the Turks kill him when they found out what he did to the altar? He, he laughed. He said, no, it didn't happen that way. Okay. Well, as horrible as the Aesculapius uh, altar was, or the uh, Aesculapius altar was, uh, the Zeus altar, altar, rather, the Pergamons also worshipped the gods Apollo, Athene, Aphrodite, Bacchus, uh, and Dionysius, whose worship involved uh, things I wouldn't describe. So is it any wonder that Christ called Pergamos Satan's throne? Uh, 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 Satan's seat in the, in the King James Version is a Greek word that uh, means throne, so it can be translated as throne as well. Matthew Henry wrote, Pergamos reeked with the stench of its heathenism, evil hung in its streets like a clammy fog. Now can you imagine living there trying to plant a church? I mean, it's an easy thing to profess Christ, which you can do without danger, but these people did it at the risk of their lives. The Pergamos church is suffering. We read that here. Her biggest fault is her toleration of false teachers and their heresies. Now, that's so much not as a combination of the people of the church, but it's a condemnation of the elders, the minister and the, and the elders of the church. See, it's their responsibility to watch over the flock and to keep out false prophets. Uh, Remember from Matthew 7, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They look kind and wonderful, yet inwardly what? They're ravening wolves. Uh, They were not doing their job. I mean, we have churches today you can go to and you hear all sorts of wonderful sermons about... You know, love your neighbor, and on Mother's Day, you know, remind you to love your mother, and and all that. But are they preaching the gospel? No. As as my mentor Bob Schuff said, when you listen to a sermon, ask yourself, could it have been preached in a synagogue? Could it have been preached in a synagogue? Is Christ preached? Is Christ held up and preached, or is it just a bunch of fluff to make you feel good? Well, that's not preacher's job. To make you, uh, it's great if, if you feel good because the gospel is preached. That's the point. Not for me to make you feel good, uh, direct like that. Uh, 
So they weren't doing their job. The ministers, the elders were not doing their job. Now that differs from the sin of the church at Ephesus that we looked at recently. They had lost their first love, Christ said. They'd grown indifferent in their faith. That was a sin of the members as well, possibly of the minister of the church, since his job, as I say, is to present the word of God with power, which feeds and strengthens his his people's faith. Uh, In this letter, the Lord is reproving the angel of the church, and there's no mystery about what the angel is elsewhere in the book of Revelation. Christ said the angel of the church is, is is uh, is the minister. So, the angel of the church, or the minister of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. What is that? Verse 12? Yes, verse 12 in chapter 2. Here our Lord describes himself as the one who has the sharp sword with two edges. The sharp two-edged sword. Uh, in Revelation 1.16, And he had in his right hand, Christ, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. If you put a few things together, John 1 says Christ is the Word. And it says repeatedly, the Word, the Word, the Word. Ephesians 6 says the Word is the sword, spiritually. And Hebrews 4 says the Word, the sword, is sharp, two-edged sharp. So the Word of God is represented as a two-edged sword. Now, what's a two-edged sword? We see lots of Civil War swords and things. But a two-edged sword is a not only an offensive weapon, but it's a defensive weapon. Because you can use it this way, or you can use it this way, right? It's got two sharp edges on the edges, not just one. So the Word conquers sinners for Christ, but it also condemns the enemies of Christ. There's no escaping the edge of this sword. If you turn aside to the right hand, it has an edge on that side. If you turn aside to the left hand, you'll fall on the edge of the sword on that side. It turns every way. What does that remind you? Remember? The Garden of Eden? Sword, the angel of the sword, guarding after the fall, guarding the Garden of Eden, turning every way. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and destroy up the brightness of the coming, the spirit of his mouth. Okay, the word of God. It's not, we don't, mustn't think of literally, obviously, a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, not a metal sword. But it's the word of God coming out of his mouth. He's speaking the word of God. He is the word of God. It's coming with power. Christ, okay, let's, let's verse 13. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. We'll talk about Antipas in a moment. Christ prefaces every one of the seven letters to the churches with these words, I know thy works. I know thy works. In other words, I see everything you do. I know what you stand for. I know what you believe. I know what you say. I know what you think. The references in, in the Gospels to Christ reading people's thoughts, knowing what they're going to say before they say it, or knowing what they're thinking. And he'll say out loud, well, I know what you're thinking. Not the way we say, I know what you're thinking. He knew what, <laughs> what people were thinking. I know your heart, is what he's saying. I know your heart. There's nothing hid from the Lord. He says, I know where you... 
Christ knows where they live. They know where Pergamos. He knows about Pergamos. It's not a secret to him. He specifically wanted to send a letter to the to the church at Pergamos. These these letters are to the churches, not just to the town, but to the to the churches, to the minister, which is to then to the church. So he knows what kind of an evil place Pergamos is, but these people have held forth the name of Christ, the gospel, to this wicked and dying city in the face of persecution, in the face of torture, in the face of almost certain death. Note what he says. Thou holdest fast, in verse 13, my name and has not denied the faith. He doesn't say that. He says, has not denied my faith. Christ's faith took him to the cross. We know that in Romans 3.22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, in other words, you don't get right with God by you know, being a good person, trying to be a good person. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith... In Jesus Christ, it doesn't say that. Galatians 2.16, if you want to look at it, look at it later, but it says, by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. I'm not, I'm not saying faith in Christ is not important. It's essential. But our salvation comes from Christ's faith, first of all, and then our faith, which is a gift, uh, not of works lest any man should boast, it is a gift that given to us, but primarily it's Christ's faith that saves us. Uh, another one, Philippians 3.9, And be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. See, if it was my faith in Christ that saves me, then I've got something to boast about, right? But what does Ephesians 2 say? You know, why? why is it that way? It's by grace you're saved... And grace is the Lord's free grace, free decision, what he wanted to do. So that's how we're saved. By grace you're saved through faith. But even that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. Not of works, not of things we do. Why? Lest any man should boast. If I could, if I could say that I contributed that much to my salvation then it wouldn't be all of God, then I would something to boast about, wouldn't I? But it's all of God. We can't come to Christ in our own decisions. We can't make our own reason and say, okay, I'm going to reason my way to Christ, because our reason has fallen. The Garden of Eden, our reason fell, just like our, the rest of our, our moral sense fell. Okay. Christ takes notice of all the temptations and discouragements that the Pergamos Church met, that we meet, uh, and he sees where we are in the world and what our station in life is, and he makes allowances for that graciously. He did for the Pergamites. made gracious allowances for that because they had some problems in the church. They had been steadfast even in those days when Antipas, his faithful martyr, was slain among them. Who is Antipas? We don't know. You look in the concordance, you'll just see it's, that's the only place his, uh, his name is mentioned. Uh, you look in history, history doesn't have anything to say about, about Antipas. We know he obviously lived in Pergamos. Uh, he was in the church. Uh, all we know is from this verse. 
Um, he was a faithful disciple of Christ. He suffered martyrdom for it in the place where Satan dwelt. Uh, and the uh, and the rest of the believers are praised by Christ for not losing their faith or becoming discouraged, even though it must have been a horrible thing for Antipas to Antipas to have been martyred. Now the Eastern Orthodox Church, he's a saint of the Eastern Orthodox Church, and there's a, a story uh, that has no history that we know behind it, but it's passed down and may or may not be true that Antipas was boiled in oil, I believe it is, uh, to death. Uh, we, we don't know. But it was a, it was, he was martyred, so it was a terrible thing. And the Lord commends their zealousness for him, especially in such a, such a wicked place. He's called by Jesus, my faithful martyr. You're going to be a martyr. You better hope that Jesus would say, you are a my martyr. Say, a lot of people say, well, he, he died for Christ. Yeah, he died for Christ, but that's not as important as the fact that he lived for Christ. Can we say that about ourselves? Will somebody say that about us? Maybe when we die and you know, and, you know praying to God and trying to be all that. But did did he live for Christ? Did that did they did that woman live for Christ? Did that child live for Christ? Can they say that about you? Will they say that about you? If you were to die tonight, would they say about you that you lived for Christ? And I don't care how old you are. They say that about you that you lived for Christ your whole life. Sure, you'll sin here and you'll fall there. But is your heart such that you want to be like Jesus and you want to follow him? I hope so. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank thee for such great salvation. Thou hast given us, Father, not of ourselves, but through the faith of Christ. Lord, work in our hearts. Work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Father, as we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, as we're trusted and and commanded to do. Father, make it uh, real to us. Father, we, we believe, help thou our unbelief. Strengthen us in our faith, Father, that we may more and more live to thee every day. Father, day by day, more and more living to thee, Father. Lord, we have particular prayer requests that I we need to pray about. We remember the Meat Yard family, one-year anniversary, Father. Isabel died, leaving her husband, John, and two small children, Ryan and Lily. Father, the, these kind of anniversaries are very difficult. So, Father, we ask special blessings upon them. Strengthen their faith as well. We thank Thee that they are believers, Father, but particularly strengthen at this time, Father. and. Uh, let them realize that life is short. Uh, man's life is to which today is and tomorrow is gathered up and thrown into the fire, just like uh, it's it's a it's a vapor. Uh, so soon they'll be together. Give them that assurance, Father. We thank thee for the rain, Father, the life-giving rain that we've been praying for for so long, and thou art so gracious to give it to us. And let us learn the the lessons that thou hast for us in the in the drought. Uh, we pray for the those who are sick among us, uh, those who are absent from us because of sickness. 
uh, for the Jaroski family particularly. Cure them quickly, Father. We thank thee for their uh, Julie and Craig's wedding anniversary, Lord, that uh, thou hast kept them uh, together, happy, through thick and thin, as of all married couples are. But thank thee, Father, for uh, blessing that, uh, that union. Uh, Father, in, in all these things, we, uh, oh, we particularly pray for Mrs. Brown. Uh, Lord, uh, from a human standpoint, it doesn't look good. But, Father, spiritually strengthen her. Uh, give her peace. And let her be a, continue to be a beacon uh, to those around her, uh, reflecting the, the glory of Christ uh, to the caregivers and to the families, family around her, Father. Lord, as we uh, now prepare to conclude the service and to have our discussion time and time of fellowship, Father, and we go to our homes, let us remember this is not our day. Six days we are to labor and do all the work, thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord thy God. And in it we shall not do any work, neither us nor our families, nor those who are employed by us, nor uh, nor, uh, the stranger in our gates, those who may be our guests in our home. Uh, But, Father, uh, it is called the Lord's Day. So let us remember that it is the Lord's Day. And show us how we are to uh, honor thee. Father, in, uh, in today, and particularly in, in resting in Thee. Uh, protect us in our as we go home, Father, and uh, let us remember our daily family devotions, both individually and uh, our, our daily devotions, both individually and as a family. Uh, let us not neglect Thy Word, for Thy Word is truth. In our Lord and Savior's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. And uh, our final psalm is in the Black Psalter, Psalm number 26. And Elder Duell, if you would come up, please. Again, it's in the uh, Scottish Metrical Psalms, the Black Psalter, as we finish singing this psalm, Psalm 26. The tune is called St. George. It goes like this. Psalm 26, starting at the ninth verse. With sinners gather not my soul, and such as blood would spill whose hands mischievous plots, right hand corrupting bribes do fill. But as for me, I will walk on in mine integrity. Do thou redeem me, and, O Lord, be merciful to me. My foot upon an even place to stand with steadfastness within the congregations, the eternal I will bless. Please stand and let's sing together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where?
sinners gather not my soul, and such as blood would spill, whose hands mischievous plots right hand corrupting bribes do fill. But as for me, I will walk on in mine integrity. benediction. The God of all grace who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect establish, strengthen settle you to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen Okay, well if uh, are there any maybe seated are there any uh, questions about uh, the message